Hey, it's at the letters for Thursday, February 25th. Arden Swelling and Ben Nicholson Smith, our producers as always, Mike Tassoni, Kristen Ryan. We thank them very much for their hard work in getting this podcast out to you, the listeners. And we thank you for listening. Ben, every day right now is just like a, a reminder of how much uh, I wish I was at spring training, how much I wish I was like around the club and covering it. And the one that I got yesterday was when we were talking to Rowdy Tellez via Zoom, and he was describing the live BP that he stood in for against Alec Manoa. And that got me thinking, oh yeah, watching live BPs right now would be really cool because you so seldom get to watch these players actually face off against one another and actually compete against one another. So like just hearing about what rowdy described as a sumo match <laughs> between him and manoa caught me kind of thirsting to see some live bps if you could see like one live bp from this year's camp you know what what matchup would really intrigue you oh wow well i, can I know tell you i'm the putting hitter. you on the spot sorry no no Go oh, good so the hitter would be vlad jr uh and usually they do these things in groups where the hitters rotate through yeah. so i'll create george springer vlad Bo, and Kirk in a group that'll be the hitting group <laughs> usually it's in fours as you know obviously and then um the pitcher man that's a good one you know what it might be your guy Simeon Woods Richardson yeah. someone I haven't seen a lot of and someone who's very promising of course you had the big read this week on sportsnet.ca and yeah I think it'd be fun to watch him see you know some of this Blue Jays pitching um, that next wave up close so that would be my answer what about you yeah th- that would be cool to watch I would actually like to see Simeon Woods Richardson versus Jordan Groshans because like the stories you hear from the alt site is that those two guys had some like pretty epic battles and we're like really going back and forth with with one another and those are two of the more you know competitive guys in the organization and, and two guys who are clearly trying to prove something really in their careers and also the like the crazy thing about that alt site experience for a lot of those guys you know it's pretty limited players there right you had every you know, all the guys on the major league side and like a taxi squad on the big league side. So if you're Simeon Woods Richardson, you're facing the same hitters over and over and over again. So he would have faced Groshans like 30, 40, 50 times over the course of a couple of weeks. You get a pretty good idea of what the other guy's good at, what he likes, what he doesn't like. You know what I mean? Like Jordan Groshans will know how Simeon Woods Richardson likes to sequence and likes to set up his pitches. And then likewise, like, you know, Simeon would know where to attack around the zone. So it'd be cool to kind of watch that develop and watch that sort of cat and mouse game play out a little bit for two guys who know each other really well. Well, think about the times through the order penalty, right? And the hitter progressively yeah. gets an advantage as you go through the game. You see him a second, third time. Those guys were seeing each other 60 or 70 <laughs> times. I mean, I'm sure that Groshans in that example would have developed some familiarity. So for sure, I mean, a lot of layers to it. It's a good chance to just familiarize yourself with some of those newcomers to Blue Jays camp. Of course, there are lots of those on the pitching side. Guys like Chatwood or Mats or you know, Robbie Ray, of course, uh, was around at the end of last year. But yeah, it's, it's always a fun time. We're limited to the footage that we see like everybody else. And it is, it is nice to see the action starting to happen. It'll be nice to have a game to watch this Sunday. But uh, yeah. yeah, of course, you can't compare it to the real thing. No. Give me like Ryu versus Biggio. Yeah. Ryu just like painting the corners as he does. And Biggio having like the elite pitch selection and like plate vision that he does. You know, give me uh, like Trent Thornton versus Joe Panic. 
like two of the kind of like i know that's off the board but two of like the scrappier kind of guys you know two kind of like bulldog competitors like that battle could go a dozen pitches deep easily because panic will just be fouling everything off and thornton will be like well here's my fifth pitch and here's actually my sixth pitch that i haven't used yet that's where my mind's at right now panic versus thornton get arden down there folks (laughs) he he really wants to see some live bps uh speaking of guys like like thornton and you know you mentioned robbie ray and you know just kind of cavalcade of pitchers who are in camp right now what do you think we've learned in the first week just about how this pitching staff is going to shake out how the blue jays are going to deploy some of these arms and what it might look like in 2021 the one thing I point to here is Tyler Chatwood and his role. I think that's probably my biggest takeaway to this point, and it's pretty straightforward. The Blue Jays are going to use him as a reliever, potentially a kind of multi-inning reliever. Charlie Montoyo said sometime after the sixth inning, sort of like the way they used Julian Merriweather last year. So, you know, that's kind of the first name that we can cross off of the list for the competition for the rotation spots available um, in Blue Jays camp. And Chatwood, you know, obviously has, as you've written about, he's got some high spin stuff. He's got some velocity that has played up in the past when he's pitched out of the bullpen. And there was a chance when he signed that he would be starting, but they've decided to go in a different direction. So honestly, that's, you know, it's not huge news by any stretch, but that's probably my biggest takeaway so far. Yeah, it's interesting the comparison to the Julian Merriweather role from last season, because Merriweather was a guy who, I mean, it wasn't just strictly like a one inning appearance like the blue jays typically tried to get him up to two innings and even like measuring by innings is kind of you know outdated sure. like it was typically like six to nine batters was sort of the frame and so it sounds like that's what that's how tyler chatwood's going to be used i wonder if that's how ryan barucki kind of gets used as well i don't know that he's necessarily just a three or four batter guy like i think you could take a trip through the order and you know i wonder if the blue jays are building sort of that like middle tier of relievers on this staff for guys like and Merriweather might end up in this like class as well if he doesn't end up being a starter this year he's being stretched out right now because the Blue Jays are stretching out as many pitchers as possible just to keep their options open but a guy like Merriweather Baraki Chatwood could be that dude who comes in after your starter goes two trips through and you don't want him to see a third and takes that third trip through and kind of bridges things to maybe the back end of the bullpen to your Rafael Delises and Jordan Romanos and, and Kirby Yates's of the world. Right. And I mean, you really will need those bridge type of starters. You look at the, the schedule for the Blue Jays, and I don't think it's too early to do this, but for the first couple of weeks of the season, they basically have one off day and it's the second day of the season. So they play once, have an off day, then they go two weeks straight with basically no days off. And this is after 60 game season. This is after, you know, a lot of uncertainty as far as the ramp up to the 2021 season, I don't think that we see guys out of the gate going 110 pitches. You know, I think that there's going to be some caution there. And that will mean that the Blue Jays need to have guys capable of filling in those gaps, those middle innings. So Chatwood could be one of those guys. Merriweather could be. And then it's kind of interesting. In the, in the second half of the month of April, they have four off days. So at that point, probably want to shorten up the rotation, in fact. Maybe go with a bigger bench. But, you know, that's that's kind of details for a couple months from now. But I do think the need exists for those multi-inning relievers. Well, let me ask you this. Considering that early season schedule, how quickly or like how long do you think it'll be before the Blue Jays get to a sixth starter making a start this season? Oh, it could be early. 
right? You know, yeah, it could it's be where I'm leading you here. Yeah, exactly. Like, it might it be, be right away. Yeah, no, it, exactly. I mean, there's pretty good reason, especially if, and some of this comes down to health. But let's say that you know Thornton is throwing great, and Pearson, of course, is, is throwing well, and Ray is healthy, and they also want to see Stephen Matz. Well, maybe you just give everyone an extra day of rest. We know Ryu likes that. We know they want to be cautious with Pearson. I mean, it's it's all situational. And if Pearson, yeah. you know, if there's a rain delay and Pearson's pulled after, like there are all these little situational things that figure in. But I won't be surprised at all if they go to with their sixth starter on the tenth day of the season. That's why, like the even talking about it as a five man rotation is just like completely, you know, it's a misnomer, right? There's no, there's no more such thing as a as a five man rotation. It's a pitching staff is the way that you have to look at it. Like what, like let me put. I know I'm throwing lots of weird questions at you. No, I like it. Let me put it to you this way: Come the end of the season, let's just assume the Hunjin Ryu leads the Toronto Blue Jays in innings pitched. And I understand that's a dangerous assumption given his injury history, but let's just make that assumption. Hunjin Ryu leads Toronto Blue Jays in innings pitched. Who do you think finishes second? Pearson, if things go well, right? At like 150. Yeah. Or could easily be Robbie Ray. At 150. At 150. Could yeah. easily be Tanner Roark at 150. Like I kind of think the Blue Jays, when all is said and done, might have this pitching staff with like, you know, Hunjin Ryu leading the team in innings pitched, assuming health. 175. And, and then like seven or eight guys who are over 70 innings pitched, yeah. but below 150. Yeah. Who are in that that murky middle. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough way to go, but I think that's likely what we're, we're going to see. Like, I'll, I'll put it to you this way, and this is a bit of a preemptive over-under here, is we, of course, anticipate another edition of our over-unders in a month or so. But, um, you know, if I said to you, over-under 1.5 pitchers who exceed 150 innings, are you taking the over? No. Yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't either. No. Which is kind of crazy for a team that, you know, we both agree is a contender. We both think this is a good team. But they, this might be a good team that succeeds with like a whole mix and match approach to their pitching staff. Yeah, that's the way they're built. And that's the way that I think um, you know, baseball is trending this way. And I think that, you know, when we're having this conversation, or when, sorry, when like two younger and better and more attractive people are having this conversation <laughs> in 10 years, uh, like right. the, it, I, I, I think that we're, you're not going to be talking about like, you know, 180 inning starters anymore, 190 inning starters. I don't even know if you're going to be talking about a rotation. I think you're going to be talking about just the pitching staff and just the out getters. And guys get outs at different times of of the game. And it's a fluid, alive thing that is measured from game to game and week to week and month to month based on recovery and based on biomechanical data and based on pitch tracking and you know the based on motion capture and the way the teams can measure arm slots and release points and deliveries and mechanics and and really like hone in on a lot of the data that tells them exactly just how fresh their pitchers are exactly who's going to be successful going forward and who needs to be backed off a day and who's recovering well all these measures of strength and endurance and durability like i just think that that that's where pitching is ultimately going instead of just like you are the starter and you start every fifth day and you go seven or eight innings there might be like a very, very upper echelon class of guys in the game who can do that. Like there might still be a Scherzer kicking around and a Verlander type kicking around, but like 
other than that, like, I think it's just going to be, you get outs and I'm not going to tell you when we're going to ask you to get outs, but you get outs when we ask you to get outs and don't worry about how many, you know, numbers are under your game started calling. And I agree that we'll see that in 10 years, but I mean, like, are we not kind of there now functionally? Like, I know that the term still exists and I think that some people within major league organizations still think in terms of five-man rotations and, I think others don't. I think that others are already at the point where it's just kind of like, all right, we're getting outs and we need, you know, 27 times 162 of those. And we got to, we got to get those. Um, So I kind of think we're already there. No, totally. And it plays into matchups as well. And it plays into, um, you know, your your scouting of the opponent and how you think you can exploit their weaknesses. I mean, it plays into current form and like you said, circumstances, it it, it all kind of, plays together but i think the blue jays is gonna be a lot more fluid and flexible this year um you know even with with lineup construction like batting orders you know people are you know running out like oh this is what the batting order is going to be who this who's going to lead off this who's going to hit third i don't know it might look different every day man it usually does most years like if there's a page on baseball reference that has this most years major league teams these days use like 100 and 10, I want to say. I'll look it up. But I, I think it's over 100 lineups in a given year. I have it because I just wrote it the other day. Last season, 60-game season, the Blue Jays used 56 different lineups. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> in a 60-game season. So I, I don't expect that to be any different this year as the Blue Jays continue to try to sort of maximize their flexibility and maximize versatility. I mean, that's why you're seeing like Lourdes Gurriel Jr. taking ground balls at third base. And that's why Vladimir Gurriel Jr. is taking ground balls at third base and why George Springer is going to play some right during spring training, even though he should be in center field every day. Like the, the you know, Marcus Semien, right. is going to, you know, see time at different spots. Joe Panic's probably got a role to play on this team. Like that flexibility, that versatility is key to deploying your roster in the way that the blue jays want to so like it and that extends to like the projections of what the 26 man roster is going to be on opening day it's not about the 26 it's about like the 34 <laughs> you know it's about like the the blue jays really by the end of it are going to have like a core of like 34 35 players that they rely on this year and they're going to have a lot of guys on the edges of the roster particularly in the bullpen we're going up and down up and down up and down you know it's not just 26 it's about the the depth of your 40 and uh, particularly kind of the upper 32 34 of that of that 40 and and i think that's where the blue jays will likely succeed or fail this year is just in the depth and how they backfill for injuries and how they backfill for underperformance agreed so let me ask you this as far as you know these different avails that we've been you know participating on very similar to this you're on your you're on your uh zoom setup as am i and we're talking to these different blue jays players what stood out to you about the first kind of week or so of talking to these guys for the first time in it's been a while since we last uh, heard from them Nothing's really stood out, to be honest with you. What stood out to you? Like, I, I can't, like, it's been pretty run of the mill, man, honestly. You know, I would say the Springer stuff has stood out to me a little bit, just as far as, you know, it's not like he's going out there and making these big, bold declarative statements in the same way that we've seen from guys like Obechette saying that, you know, World Series is a possibility, Rowdy Telez, Alec Manoa. There's a lot of World Series talk from the Jays. And that's, you know, certainly weren't saying that last year in 2019 with good reason. So, I think in contrast to that, George Springer is more understated, but it was interesting to me to see that he seemed to show kind of some genuine humility when it came to his approach to spring training and being a teammate. And 
I think this stuff can be overwrought at times. And I sometimes it honestly comes off as disingenuous, even if these guys are totally genuine about it. But for whatever reason, I kind of bought it with Springer, where he was saying, like, it's not everyone else's job to try to fit to me, even as this new big addition. He's saying it's his job to essentially get to know everyone else, to fit into the group. And he's saying that, you know, he wants to play a lot of spring games. He wants to go on the road on these little bus trips that the Jays will be making. Okay. And I don't know. I, I bought it. Maybe I'm maybe he's fooling me and maybe it's BS, but I actually bought it and it seemed like some genuine humility from their biggest star. Well, I think it matters with him because like I've always believed that your your team culture is your best player. Like your best player sets that. It's like a it's a top-down thing, you know. I don't know, like Santiago Espinal isn't setting the team culture on the Toronto Blue Jays. In my opinion, George Springer is the Toronto Blue Jays best player so that is where your culture is set and everybody falls in behind that so those are the things you want to hear from george springer and even just thinking about sort of the blue jays philosophy organizationally and acquiring talent and and making commitments to players they would not have spent the amount of money on george springer and made the type of term commitment george springer that they would have if they had not done some extremely serious due diligence on this guy's character and makeup and how he is in the clubhouse and what they felt he could provide culture-wise. This is something that the Blue Jays think about a lot. And I think that, like, you're right. Like, there was a little bit of humility there from him. But there is also, like, a bit of that edge as well and a bit of that swagger and that confidence that you see from, like, a Bo Bichette and, you know, Kevin Biggio in a, in a subtler way. And I think George Springer has that as well. He spoke about enjoying the confidence around the team, enjoying hearing his teammates talk about wanting to win World Series and about setting those expectations high. And this is something that's been coming up. I think we talked about it last week or a couple of weeks ago. It's something that's been coming up through the minor league system with guys like Bichette and like Groshans has it. Manoa has it. Simeon Woods Richardson has it. Like people are about to start learning as these guys get tried out in front of cameras during Zooms. And particularly when they're on the mound, like just wait until people watch Simeon Woods Richardson pitch and realize what this guy's about. Like just wait until people see Alec Manoa in a game and realize like, holy crap, like these guys are really confident and really kind of mean on the field. <laughs> they really are, man. Like yeah. they're coming right at you. Like they, they're not afraid and, and they, they want to beat you like really desperately. Like the Blue Jays, I feel in their hiring, um, like in the front office or like developers, coordinators, they kind of actually look for a bit of humility and a little bit of open-mindedness and like a, an ability to say like, hey, I don't know the answers. You tell me and let's work collaboratively. And I don't know if they want that necessarily that that egotistical nature in, you know, the the people who are grooming these young players. But I think in the young players, they very much want that like screw you. You know, they want that edge and that cockiness. Like I think I very much want that like innate competitiveness. Like much of what we have seen from Bo Bichette over his first few years in the majors. And I think Sir George Springer has a little bit of that and is going to fit in well with that. It's interesting, right? And some guys, you know, totally need that. I think, you know, you think back to Donaldson, the way he would approach those things between the lines, like that's a fired up dude between the lines for any, even, even beyond them. Sometimes Stroman, of course, very competitive. Um, so for some guys, it's just the way they work. And I think for, you know, for Springer, I actually sense like a different, and we're just getting, more familiar with how he operates, but I sense a little bit of a different approach. Like he's saying, and maybe it's a product of, you know, he's already had so much success in the major leagues and there's less to prove in a way, but I sense from him that there's a little bit less of that. And he's even saying to us in these, in these zoom calls, like I will fail. I will 
make mistakes. I'm not going to deliver every time. And of course, that's true in any walk of life. Like if you're a Michelin star chef, probably not every meal is amazing. Maybe, maybe that's the wrong example. For most people, you're going to have days that are better and days that are worse. And Springer's acknowledging that. And some of these players, like that's not something that we would necessarily hear from Bo Bichette, just different personalities. But it's, it's been interesting to get to hear some of the perspectives from Springer, because like you said, he is the guy who's probably most responsible for setting the tone now. You know where that like really materialized for me last year, and I, I, it's just kind of more impactful the more I think about it, was the like playing in Buffalo and the home record that the Blue Jays had in Buffalo at that ballpark. Like the Blue Jays, like going into that season, going into every home game, had this like baked in excuse for, well, here's why we weren't good tonight. And like, here's why this season didn't go right for us because we were essentially on the road the entire year. Remember they started the year on like a like three week road trip without an off day and like just an absurd schedule. Well, season was a road trip, yeah. basically. But like, it was really bad for the yeah. first few weeks of the season. And then they just like, they got to Buffalo and they they really did make that a competitive advantage for themselves. They really did kind of like rally around and it's like you were saying earlier, man, some of this stuff can be disingenuous and eye-rolling, right? And uh, Like, I understand completely, but I do think there is something to that. And I think, like, there is something to the Blue Jays kind of needing to fight against falling into this trap of, like, believing, like, well, you know, we're up against it. Like, we're, in, we're playing in Dunedin, right? You even hear a lot of the talk about how the ballpark's going to play, like... Blue Jays pitchers can't be going into these games thinking, oh man, I'm going to give up 100 home runs and you know it's going to get up into that jet stream. And like they have to go into it thinking, like, I'm going to find a way to use this to my advantage and I'm going to like rally around this. Um, because like even just you know, subconsciously thinking things aren't going to go well when you go into anything, it's like you were saying in any walk of life, but especially in a professional sports atmosphere, just having that subconscious thought of like this isn't going to go well for me. Well, then, yeah, like self-fulfilling prophecy, things probably aren't going to go well for you. Like you, how I can't tell you how many coordinators and hitting coaches I've talked to about not having fear at the plate and not being afraid to like strike out and to be embarrassed on, on national television, right? And to swing and miss at, at nasty stuff. You know, like the, the longer I, I cover this game, the more I, I, I talk to people in it and people who play at the highest level, like just the more I value that mental side of it and that psychological aspect and just the insane mental challenges that go into playing this game at the highest level and just how important mentality and approach and self-talk is to being successful at this level. I think it's so, so important. Without a doubt. And we've heard from guys in the last week who have been talking about just that. I mean, Rowdy Telez telling us that he spent a lot of the off season reading, and I don't want to say self-help, but you know, more kind of conceptual books about what you were just talking about, um, ways to improve, ways to approach different challenges. That's on the mental side. Or Vladdy, I mean, he's talking about, hey, I've lost 42 pounds, but you know, along with the quickness that he feels, he's also feeling more mentally ready for the season from what he told us via interpreter just the other day. So I think that there's no doubt that that mental side of things is hugely important for you know any type of athletic feats any type of performance which obviously these guys are in just two quick points on on springer to wrap that part up i think um you know one probably some people are listening right now and they're saying well you know this is a guy who cheated 
and someone who, you know, whose success and who has gotten to this point in his career because he cheated. All right. I mean, he did. They banged the trash cans. He benefited from that. That's true. So just acknowledging that. And then secondly, I thought, you know, there's a, a comment that Telez relayed to us from Springer about how they kind of approach uh, different teammates, in particular minor league teammates were coming up. And I thought it was really interesting that Telez, you know, in recounting what Springer said, pointed out that these guys, these minor leaguers who are coming up are going to be their future teammates. They're going to be Blue Jays in two or three or four years. So why would you go out of your way to make them uncomfortable, to go through this kind of hazing process that, of course, is embedded within a lot of different sports? But it seems like Springer and Telez are kind of looking at that and they're like, this is kind of dumb. Like these guys are about to be our teammates. Like, why are we just going to essentially bully them? Oh, yeah. I mean, some of the stories you hear from back in the day about the things that, uh, like, not even just minor leaguers, like rookies in the big yeah. leagues were made to withstand. And, like, some of the treatment and punishment. Like, you think about a little bit of the, like, reckoning that hockey has gone through with with hazing over recent years. Like, I, I don't know if it's going to come for baseball or if some of those stories are going to come to light. But, yeah, there's, like, a, you know, a lot of, like, foul stuff that, that occurred. So, uh, no, absolutely. I think creating, you know, fostering an environment where, players feel comfortable to be themselves and you know and feel like they're a part of something is important i think the blue jays put a lot of work in into that and i you know it, it was always going to go that way because like a Bo Bichette comes into you know the blue jays environment at uh 17 or 18 having like spent quite a bit of time around professional baseball growing up having made a pretty substantial bonus through the draft like having quite a bit of pedigree same thing you know Kevin Biggio not so much the bonus but the pedigree there obviously obviously the pedigree of Vladimir Guerrero Jr like these weren't guys that were going to you know come in and be those rookie whipping boys <laughs> like these are guys who are gonna who came in as like pretty you know pretty fully formed professionals you know what I mean like they they did have a little bit of that leg up just by their upbringing so i think it started there and then you're right it does you know progress forward with guys like not just rowdy but like you know uh danny jansen and ryan baraki and jordan romano uh nate pearson who are all working out in dunedin over the winter rubbing shoulders with minor leaguers the blue jays had like off-season development camps throughout the winter and minor leaguers coming in and out the whole time watching big leaguers work getting to know them yeah, there is, uh, you know, there, there is something to that. And I think it's, it's changed quite a bit, you know, just kind of the, the atmosphere around a, a major league clubhouse here in 2021 versus even just 10 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't think the Blue Jays are alone in this. I don't think baseball is alone in, in these changes. I think it's obviously society-wide and sports, you know, in, encompassing a lot of different sports as well. Um, but of course, we see the Blue Jays much more than we see other teams and hear from them much more. And it's interesting to observe for sure. Yeah, and it ties into a lot of uh, a lot of other aspects of the organization, including the you know the new uh, player development complex that uh, we're all going to get a, a look at here on, on Thursday, and a bunch of other things that are uh, going on. Maybe we can talk about those in the second half of the podcast when it continues on at the letters. It continues on at the letters Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson Smith. Our producers are Christian Ryan and Mike Tassoni. Ben, you alluded to it in the first half of the podcast. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has dropped 42 pounds. Uh, the offseason conditioning and the work that actually really began at you know the beginning of summer camp. 
which would have been uh, early last July, uh, clearly starting to pay some dividends with uh, some improved body composition. Uh, you know, he, the Blue Jays hope and he hopes a bit more agility, a bit more quickness uh, in the field and, and on the base pass and, and maybe some smoother swing mechanics as well with just, uh, you know, a, a more efficient movement profile. What does it all mean? Like, what, what, how does that uh, translate to big league success, do you think? So, I mean, starting with the behind the scenes work and then progressing to how it actually manifests on the field, I think behind the scene, and this is kind of based on what Vladdy told us uh, through Hector LeBron um, and, and other stuff that you hear from people around the team. So if he's in better shape, which obviously he is, then that will allow him to go out into the field and take more ground balls, for example, without getting tired. That was one example that Vladdy cited in talking to us, is he can go out there, he's not feeling fatigued after 10 or 15 ground balls, he can keep going. And then with more reps, he becomes smoother, he's able to put in that work, he's able to to develop defensively, for example. Same goes for swings in the cage, and then the same goes for his recovery. If he does stay out there for a few dozen extra ground balls, then that next day, he's more likely to feel like himself and he's more likely to be able to go out there and do the same thing and continue that improvement. So that's the behind the scenes work. And then in a game, if he's a little bit quicker, which is his word to describe it, then he's more likely to be able to make that play defensively. He's more likely to be able to stretch a single into a double. Um, You know, those balls that he lasers off the wall, some of those were singles last year. And maybe those become doubles in 2021, which helps. I mean, maybe he's a little bit more able to score from first on a double or from second on a single. So those little things add up. And his swing, too, could be just a little bit more efficient. And the movement, I mean, this is, this is way out of my depth, but yeah. the movements within his swing could be a bit more athletic and efficient. So he's a big guy. He's always probably going to be a big guy. And it's just a matter of, you know, making it as being as strong as possible and not carrying weight that he doesn't need. There's got to be a stack cast search or a savant search we can do to find like the players with the longest singles hit. You know what I mean? Over the last few yeah. years. <laughs> I wonder where Vladdy ranks on those leaderboards. He might He's be up there. up there. Wonder if we would see Kendris Morales uh, up there as well couple years back well that's a big memory for me from the Kendris Morales era was like how many times he would scorch a ball like as if it was going to go through the wall in the outfield and it would clank off the wall and it would be coming back to the infield before he was even like grounding first (laughs) sometimes you can hit the ball too hard I guess I don't know so yeah so about all of that I think the biggest thing with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. honestly and I know we've been talking like a lot about mentality and mental approach during this episode and me and that is just maybe where my head is at these days just thinking a lot about the psychology of the game and just life in general like uh, honestly a year into the pandemic is like oh yeah i don't know you things get a little squirrely man so like i think that just the maturity side of it and the mental side of it's going to be the biggest thing for vladimir guerrero jr like the physical gains like are going to be great and those should help and it's just like with anything right like if you are in better physical shape you are going to be you know a little bit better at whatever it is that you do and if you are taking your nutrition more seriously and your recovery more seriously and your conditioning more seriously like yes you're going to feel better and you're probably going to perform better but i think really it is just like 
that maturity and that ownership that you were talking about and that accountability and just the fact that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is growing up. He gets compared to like the Acunas of this world and the, the Sotos of this world, the Tatises of this world who like at 19 were able to just like step in and own the big leagues. That's kind of the exception to the rule, man. That's, that's pretty, pretty rare. Uh, it's a pretty high standard to hold the guy up to. We forget. I know people get tired of us saying this. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is so damn young. He's 21 years old. He hasn't yet turned 22. Like, think about how young you think a Nate Pearson is. Nate Pearson's like 24. Yeah. Kevin Biggio is like 26. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like Vlad is 21. You just have to think about yourself and what you were like at 21 and how many of us were like fully formed adults with like great habits and great understandings of, you know, how to be our best. And when you're that young, particularly when you're as like talented innately as Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is, you can get by on that just like pure talent. That's how Vladimir Guerrero Jr. was able to like absolutely decimate double A pitching. And even in the brief time they spent in triple A, they made triple A look like a video game and, you know, had us coming on here being like, call him up. He's got to be in the big leagues and the blue Jays clearly because they knew that he wasn't quite mature enough to prepare himself well enough for, for major league seasons. We're kind of pumping the brakes on that a little bit. Um, and like, we can get into the push pull of, you know, of all that if we want to, but I think just like, that's the biggest development for me with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is just like that, that mentality and that maturity that we are seeing from him. Cause I do think that that is a huge factor that he needs to unlock in order to fulfill his potential, which remains one of the best hitters in the game. For sure. The, the potential is, is absolutely there when you look at it, just how hard he hits the ball and not many guys can do that. It's, it's pretty exceptional still. I think all of that makes sense. And to get to this point is big and he's going to have to keep doing it. That's the challenge right now is he can't in the course of spring training, put on another 15 pounds and he can't, and as the season develops, he can't stop doing his preparation work or his core work or his stabilizing work. Like it's tougher in the season. Obviously the, the rhythm of it changes, but he's got to keep, doing this and that's going to be an ongoing challenge for him and some guys like they have these great habits and someone like Kevin Biggio like I think it comes pretty naturally to him probably because he grew up around the game with a dad who but then again Vladdy did too it's just I guess it's just personal it comes down to what experiences you take in how that shapes you and so Vladdy's having to make a change because obviously what he was doing last year did not work and so that change now has to be continued it's almost cliche to talk about how well, it is. It's cliche to talk about how best shape of your life is a cliche. The cliche is a cliche, but base expectation for every player, I think, in Blue Jays camp should be that you are reporting in better shape than you ended the previous oh, yeah. season at. So, you know, you're hearing a lot of it about not just Vlad, Alejandro Kirk, right? You know, Bo Bichette, Charlie Montoya was talking about the size of his legs the other day. But like that, that should just be the expectation for all players because you're, you're, you're taken out of that daily grind, right? And just when you get down to just like the, like the actual, you know, physical processes that it takes to like build muscle and like lose body fat, it's going to be a lot easier to execute on those when you're not playing a baseball game every night. You're not getting on a flight 
uh, you know, across the continent every three days and getting into hotels at four in the morning and there's no good, you know, options to, to eat at and you're not sleeping, and you're not recovering and you're not able to put like the amount of like hypertrophic volume in, in the, in the gym that it takes to actually build muscle and then actually recover from it and sleep properly. Like you can't do that during a big league season. Every player is going to lose muscle mass. I would assume during a big league season that maintaining is like great. <laughs> if you just maintain your body composition, amazing. It's during the off season where you actually make your gains and you actually make that progress. So, you know, to me, like every player should be reporting in, in great shape for every spring training. I agree. Yeah. That's their job. And this is, you know, in this day and age with so many resources available to these guys, and it's still a bit thinner on the minor league side, but if you're a major league player, you're on the 40 man, you've got all kinds of resources. So there should be no excuse for not showing up in great shape, which, you know, by the looks of it, most of these guys are in great shape. That doesn't guarantee them anything because I guarantee that if we were looking at the Baltimore Orioles or the Pittsburgh Pirates, probably those guys are in good shape too. They're just not going to play as well. It's funny. We only talk about the players who, you know, we were expecting needed to make those improvements. Like I saw a photo the other day of Teoscar Hernandez. Yeah. I was like, this dude is bricked up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. he did some work over the off season, right? I know. Talk George about Springer. Him. Yeah. George Springer is yeah. huge. These guys are jacked. Like, but, but again, that that's like, you know, I, I don't cover football, never have. And I know you, you follow the sport more closely than me, but I, I bet if you show up to day one of NFL training camp, probably those guys are pretty massive and in perfect shape too. Yeah. So, you know, I just, it's funny that it's just the, the preconceived notions that kind of come into it. But I think that every, you know, I think the Blue Jays have a lot of players who came into camp in good shape. Yeah. And that's what you want because the organization has like sort of laid the groundwork to give them all the resources needed to not have these detrimental like off seasons where they aren't, getting better and aren't making gains and i think that the uh the player development complex that's being revealed on thursday is a big part of that you know we spoke about earlier there's a group of blue jays who train there throughout the off season and i think that as an organization you would much rather that nate pearson is training under your roof with your folks using your facilities and not going off the driveline and not feeling like he has to go somewhere off site to make the gains he's trying to make Jordan Romano, you know, last year went to Kinetic Pro in Tampa to work out there because just, you know, the Blue Jays didn't have the same facilities and didn't have the same abilities to help him advance and help him become like this back end of the bullpen weapon. Well, he spent all winter training out the Blue Jays player development complex, you know, like, so I think that's a massive benefit of the renovation and of, you know, the, the photos that we're seeing of these new facilities. And I think it was certainly a big benefit in recruiting a player like a George Springer and, and a guy like a Marcus Simeon, but more so Springer is going to spend, you know, multiple years here and you would assume be using it in the off season. But the greatest benefit of all of it is not for today's stars and today's big leaguers. It's for the future big leaguers. And it's for the minor leaguers who are going to be using that facility throughout the regular season. When the big leaguers leave this year, they're not leaving this year. They're staying, but in a you know a normal environment leave to go off to rogers center in toronto it's for the minor leaguers who are going to be playing on the complex team that's going to be playing out of there it's for the, the newly drafted players who are going to go through orientations at that facility it's for players who might be struggling at double a or high a you know their velocity is diminished or, or mentally they're going through it or just not seeing the results they should be 
And they're taken out of that competitive environment and brought to the complex for a week or two to just do a developmental block and just focus on that for a week or two, clear their head, sort out whatever mechanical adjustments or physical things they're, they're dealing with, like just get that cleared and then re-enter the competitive atmosphere of the minor league grind after that with like a, a fresh start in a clear head. Like, I think that could be a really, you know, a really positive thing that the organization could do in the future. And it's always tough because no player wants to leave games, right? No, no player wants to leave competition every night. And there's, you know, no agent <laughs> wants to see their player taken out of that either. So there's a lot of stakeholders that have to, you know, be looked at there, but sometimes like it does take a step back to take two steps forward instead of continuing to sort of grind through a minor league season in which you're not seeing the results that you want to and in which you don't have your velocity and you're only making things worse. Totally. So it's it's really interesting, this player development complex. And by the time people are listening to this, probably a lot of our listeners will have seen some of the photos of what it looks like and how it's going to be different than what it was before. But Arden, I mean, for, for you and me, we've obviously not seen the new one up close, but we certainly spent a lot of time at the old setup. So, you know, in your mind, as you were kind of looking at these photos, what were some of the contrasts that jumped out to you as far as what it used to be like and what it's like now? I mean, sheer scale is, yeah. the, is the big one. Like having been at the Matic Center on the minor league side and I've been in that gym and I've been in that training room I mean, it's, you know, there are high schools that had better facilities. Yeah. It was one no, of the ser- worst. No, like seriously, you're not even exaggerating. No, yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not exaggerating at all. It was one of the worst in Major League Baseball, and, and the Blue Jays have converted into one of the best. And, like, think about spring training for minor leaguers when you got, you know, now there's fewer minor leaguers in the organization, but you're still going to have, like, 180 of them. Think about having, you know, all those players filtering through there in this tiny cramped gym and, you know, you got lineups for the squat racks and guys are in people's way and this guy's using this thing and you got one minor league strength coach who's trying to like program workouts for all these guys and he doesn't have enough room for everybody to do things and it's just like a fiasco like i've talked to minor leaguers have been like yeah it's just like mayhem in there during spring training now there actually is room for everybody to do what they need to do not to mention like during pandemic times when spacing out is uh, actually like a protocol and actually something the players are required to do. That's a huge benefit having the covered spaces outdoors so that you can keep training on inclement weather days is, is a big one. The sports science stuff is huge. I mean, all of it is, is obvious, not just where the sport's going, but like where it's been going for a number of years. In a lot of ways, the Blue Jays are, are catching up. And with this, they have caught up and I think they hope they can kind of spin this forward and, and kind of try to win the next sports science arms race. Yeah, it's it's a pretty legit facility. I think, um, you know, it's kind of, you mentioned being a little bit more squirrely these days and obviously a year into essentially a long quarantine. I mean, it's, you see a spot like this, like that gym, I'm, you know, after trying to do crunches <laughs> and on my own floor, I'm like, wow, that looks legit. It looks really nice. And even, I mean, we've been inside the complex, the old spot where they had the cafeteria for players. And it was, as I recall, it was a windowless room. It's probably about the size of like your standard Canadian school room, like classroom, you know, just not super big. And then you look at just some of the details in this facility. They have these massive cafeterias, of course, with windows. 
outdoor dining spaces. They've got a barber shop in there. They've got massive, massive weight rooms that are well lit, well spaced out, you know, treadmills upstairs, even little details like on the walls, they've got the banners hanging, of course. Then they've got, this is, this is definitely cheesy, but I also noticed it, that they've got kind of blank banners as well in the anticipation that. of the yeah. future penance that the Blue Jays will win. So, you know, it's, it is, it's cheesy, but it catches the eye. And there's just a lot more scale, a lot more attention to detail at the new place. Think about Austin Martin, who spent the last three years of his life playing at Vanderbilt University. As a fan, if you have not like looked into Vanderbilt University's baseball program, it's essentially a professional program. The kids just don't get paid. You look at the facilities that they are using at Vanderbilt, and you can see it online, man. Look at like, the players. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Look at the Kumar Rockers of, of Jack the world. Lighter? Oh, my yeah. goodness. I know. Those guys are better than the Orioles. Oh, yeah. You could put uh, Rocker into the Blue Jays pitching staff today. Number three. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but, ladder. Watch out. But you look at the way these guys have been training and, and, and working and living and eating and recovering and the facilities they have exposure to. You were going to take a guy out of that environment and put him into the Bobby Maddox Center, right, is a significant downgrade. And so, like, that's the worst thing you can do developmentally is take a guy who's trying to acclimatize to a higher level of competition and who's trying to like face professionals and, and face in some in Austin Martin's case, an alternate site, big leaguers at this point, but have him do it without the resources that he's been leaning on for years without feeling like his best, you know, like that's, that's not what you want to do. And even for, and this is like super big picture, but you look at how MLB is kind of, executed this uh like hostile takeover of the minor leagues right and like basically mlb controls the minor leagues now and they have culled 40 teams and you know dozens and dozens of minor leaguers have been released a lot of people have lost their jobs like it's it's a bad thing you know there's less baseball being played there's fewer you know towns with affiliated baseball like i think it hurts the game at a grassroots level, but the calculus that big league teams are doing is that these these are not smooth transitions to professional baseball. What we've been doing, taking high schoolers out of the draft, taking eighteen year old amateurs out of Venezuela and the Dominican Republic, and sending them to these small towns with inadequate facilities and stretched resources, and like maybe we can get a coordinator out there, but we don't really have like you know necessarily the boots on the ground that we want to. In in order to facilitate that development that this isn't really fostering you know advancement and development this isn't helping us you know most efficiently and effectively um produce future big leaguers and it's like it's a tough thing to talk about because i think there is like a significant cost savings element to that as well you know mlb teams are always looking for efficiencies what's efficiency mean spending less money doing more with less but you know i i think that there is a very legitimate developmental argument for the fact that you know the the affiliated structure as it was and the way that teams transition players out of being amateurs to professionals was inadequate and that we will see better smoother development going forward with more of a reliance on a complex system and like an academy style training and that the blue jays have actually positioned themselves really well for that with the opening of the new complex for sure and i think even on a day-to-day -day level you know for most people, they're going to get their work done in a more productive, 
way, a maybe more creative way, more efficient way, whatever the demands of your work are. If you like your office and you feel comfortable in it, then you're probably going to get better work done. And that's you know, a point in favor of, of having these nice workspaces. And that's what this is. This is a, a workspace for these guys. And it strikes me as an outside observer who has yet to see it in person. But based on what we have seen, it strikes me as the kind of place where you could definitely get some pretty good work done. It would be a place that you could go to and you have your food taken care of. You've got space. You've got all the resources that you need to work out, to watch video, to have you know private meetings with a coach if you want to review some footage, whatever the case. All those options are there. It's probably better than being in a space that's cramped and you've got you know a, a much better working environment for these players and you have to think that that will help. Yeah, you just got to remember like everything the Toronto Blue Jays do is developmentally minded. These are player development guys. Like that is the roots of of this entire thing, and that's a lot of what's been happening over you know for the last five years. It's just setting this setting this organization up to um, better develop big league talent. Because like, yeah, look, we don't have to tell anybody. You look at the best teams across MLB or you look at kind of the model franchises whether it's like the Dodgers or uh, the Astros or uh, you know even like the San Diego Padres you know they've built that like major league roster right now mostly via trading young players that they developed internally in order to acquire win now talent but they still have a top 10 system like they still have a wealth of young talent coming up that's going to supplement that roster and that's going to allow them to have like a pretty regenerative winning cycle you know that's going to bring them that sort of sustainable winning that we hear mark shapiro and ross atkins talk about all the time like so the blue jays just have have spent the last five years trying to kind of lay that bedrock of a player development system that's going to allow them to have something similar to what the dodgers have or what the you know what the astros have um and i think the complex is is going to be huge for that you know as fans you're not necessarily going to see these orientation processes for recently drafted players but we're talking like you know weeks at a time of you know for high schoolers coming out of you know the united states who maybe didn't have access to you know a ton of education on nutrition or training there's going to be a lot of work that's going to go into that for international prospects it's going to be like language lessons and like getting accustomed to the culture shock of coming over to the united states and, and leaving your family behind in uh you know venezuela or wherever you're you're coming out of for young players it's going to be like capturing everything that you do biomechanically with uh you know like motion capture sensors and high-speed cameras and rap sodos and all this stuff to try and you know help you get better and try to produce future big leaguers because that is what sustains any successful organization certainly like a big payroll helps and going out into you know free agency like the dodgers did with trevor bauer like that helps that's going to make them better but what's really made them good over the last several years has been Cody Bellinger and Corey Seager and Kenley Jansen. And here comes Dustin May and all these homegrown produced players from a player development system that is just churning them out. And that's what the Blue Jays are trying to build. Right. And, and if you're a fan and you're listening to this or watching and thinking, I don't care. I don't care. Like, I don't <laughs> I know. care. Dude, sometimes I feel like I'm the only person in the world who cares about this stuff. And, you know, some fans will care and some fans won't. And for those who um, who don't care, thanks for bearing with us this far. But, <laughs> and that's fine. Like, yeah. it's, you know, 
I totally understand that it's it's more so. We should have just the, done batting order projections, man. That's <laughs> yeah, what people yeah. want. Right. What people want. George Springer should hit first. No, Kevin Bishio should hit first. You know, there's a limit to necessarily how exciting this is for fans. I think it's interesting, but ultimately these teams are judged by wins and losses. And that's going to be the case for the Blue Jays because, you know, the best one of these player development spring training complexes that I've ever seen exists in Arizona, Salt River Fields, Colorado, and Arizona share it. It is gorgeous. I mean, it is like incredible from an aesthetic standpoint. It's far superior to Dunedin, Florida. From a functionality standpoint, I can't say both seem great, but the Colorado Rockies are kind of like the last team in baseball. Like they're kind of the laughing stock if there is such a thing in Major League Baseball right now. And so having a great development facility only gets you so far. You have to be able to use it in the right way. You still have to make good trades. The players still have to perform. That all remains true with the Blue Jays. And so this is one ingredient for this team. And we'll see where it leads. But certainly it's better to have it than not. No, oh, yeah, you've got to hire the right folks. You got to put the right developers in place. It's kind of like the you know, baseball's kind of data revolution. Like, look, every team has spin rates now, spin efficiencies, and biomechanical data. Like, every team has the information. Every team has the scouting and analysis. It's how do you deploy it? How do you communicate it to the players? Totally. Or even seeing like the New York Times article about how baseball execs are reading thinking fast and slow. And I'm like, if you're reading that now, like you're kind of behind the times. Oh, not yeah. that it's not a great, it's a great book. Highly recommend it. But like if you're reading that in 2021, like probably not cutting edge. No, that's what the Astros were using like in, you know, 2012 or 2013, like when, you know, Lunau was first putting in a lot of the data-driven player development stuff that every team is trying to catch up to now. And the Astros went through that competitive cycle. Like George Springer was a production of that. And Jose Altuve and Alex Bregman, like in the Astros went to the LCS four or five years in a row based off of some of those philosophies. So uh, I don't know. Yeah, look, people can go read the MVP machine uh, and, you know, they'll, they'll get their fix. But uh, so let's, let's give people one like kind of trendy Blue Jays thing as we go. Bo Bichette extension. Because it was kind of interesting to hear Bichette talk about Fernando Tatis's 14-year, $340 million extension with uh, the San Diego Padres that he signed at 22 as a shortstop. Bo Bichette, also a 22-year-old shortstop, hasn't had the big league career that Fernando Tatis has had, certainly, but has had a pretty dang good one. And if it, he had, you know, uh, hadn't had a couple of unfortunate injuries, like who knows what his numbers would look like right now what did you make of uh you know the way bobachette sort of responded to that extension and, and how he discussed it with us there's a lot to take away from that honestly i mean i think that bachette one just seems very composed and in control of the message that he wants to deliver which not the case for every is he 22 how old is he? Yeah, yeah not the case for every 22 year old but he was very much you know candid as far as saying that he's open to that possibility and that the blue jays have had at least some uh, talks, but never got to the point of making an offer to Bo Bichette. And I think that makes sense just where he's at and where they're at. The Blue Jays have five more years of Bichette. There's not a rush to figure this out. And probably even if he were to get close to free agency, this market is better equipped to bid on him in free agency and win than the Padres would be with Tatis. So that's, I think, reduces some of the urgency. And Tatis is on another level. I mean, Bichette is 
a really good player. And he's had an all-star caliber start to his career. And in fact, there are only two shortstops through his age that have a higher OPS than Bo Bichette since integration. So you're talking about one, Fernando Tatis, two, Alex Rodriguez. Those are the I'm only two shortstops. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's, it's pretty rare to do what he's done at his age. But Tatis has been significantly better. So even though Bichette has been great, Tatis has been on another level, just as far as the overall offensive production, the defense, and he's played more. So Bichette is not at that level now. I think it could get to that point. If, you know, if Bichette goes out and has a 930 OPS this year and has a six-war season, I mean, it's possible that this time next year we're talking about a massive extension for Bo Bichette. But I don't think we're there now, and I think that's why it's just not quite the right time for those talks to really be taking place. Yeah, each one of these situations is so interesting for how unique they each are. Because so you look at a guy like Bo Bichette, pretty confident kid, you know, pretty willing to bet on himself. Uh, also a guy whose uh, old man did okay for himself in the big leagues. Probably, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but, you know, many, many millions of dollars of, of career earnings for Dante Bichette. So, uh, you know, I think the Bichette family is going to be a-okay going forward. And that gives Bo Bichette, uh, along with the big bonus, by the way, that he signed in the draft, the ability to bet on himself and to feel a bit more comfortable doing that. Now, Ronald Acuna coming out of Venezuela on like a $100,000 bonus. And, you know, I, I don't know the exact particulars of his upbringing, but I would assume that he did not enjoy the same level of privilege that a Bo Bichette did. He gets an absurdly team-friendly extension put in front of him, and he inks it. And he does the Atlanta Braves a massive favor with that deal. I, the players' union had to hate that deal. I don't see Bo Bichette taking any kind of a deal that is going to look like anything even close to a discount. And that's the thing with these extension talks um, for players like that is you need to find a way to share risk between both sides. And you need to find a way to, like in any negotiation, create value for both sides. And I promise you that the San Diego Padres see some value at some point in this Tatis extension. Otherwise, they wouldn't have signed him to it. Tatis clearly saw the value of it. Um, maybe he could have done better if he had gone year to year. Uh, and Bobichet kind of alluded to that a little yeah, bit. He said so. it, he said it straight up. Yeah, he said that. Right. And so did Marcus Semyon. I mean, and and they're not wrong. Yeah. But clearly Tatis saw that value. I just think for Bichette to see the value in the deal, like it is gonna have to be substantial. And I just don't know that the Blue Jays in turn then will see that value on their side if they're going to get close to what it would take to sign Bo Bichette pre-arbitration at this point. These deals have changed. I mean, the game has changed. And Mark Shapiro and John Hart back in Cleveland in the 90s. The OGs of oh, the yeah. extension. Yeah. They were at the forefront of this with guys like Carlos Baerga and Charles Nagy. Sandy Alomar Jr., I think, got one. So these deals were essential for that team they had great attendance at the time but still a small market team and it helped them sustain their success for a long period of time then the rays copied it and the Ray, i mean you look at some of those rays deals evan longoria this is 2008 i think he signed a 17 million dollar deal that gave the rays control for like multiple multiple free agent years all these options like very little guaranteed money it was an incredible deal maybe the most 
team-friendly deal that I can think of in my entire time covering baseball. I'll put that into perspective really quickly. The Acuna deal that I was just crapping all over, that's like $17 million per season. Exactly. <laughs> and that's yeah. absurdly team-friendly. This was $17 million total. It's, it's incredible. And they did similar deals with James Shields and later with Chris Archer and Blake Snell. They did one with Zobrist. Like that's when Friedman was doing those deals in Tampa, like it's no wonder they were able to make it to the World Series in 08. It's no wonder that they've remained competitive since then. These are like massive, massive, and it works against the players. But from a team standpoint, these are huge, huge creators of value that then translate into trades if you want or translate into the ability to spend elsewhere and make a mistake on a free agent. Like it's incredibly, incredibly valuable. And at some point, the Players Association picked up on that and said, maybe it's not a good idea for Evan Longoria, this like college player who's clearly going to be good to just sign away everything the first time someone comes around and offers him 17 or 20 million bucks. And gradually, we've seen those types of deals stop and slow down. And I guarantee if the Blue Jays made Austin Martin, you know, to name one example, they offered him a six-year, $22 million deal. He's saying no. That is a no. That is a non-starter. And for Bo Bichette, who's already had success, the price is way beyond that. And so more power to the players if they want to if they want to wait it out and see what they can do here. I don't think that those same types of deals are available to teams anymore, by and large. But it does create these interesting dynamics now when both sides have a lot at stake going into the next year or so. And of course, if you're the Blue Jays, you want Bo Bichette to go well, to play well, force your hand, put himself in a position where he is potentially commanding that kind of money because it means he has then reached his ceiling as an all-star contributor. Such a can of worms, student. But like you said, with uh, you know, upcoming CBA negotiations, right? Yeah. So this ties into that from both a team and player perspective. Because from a team perspective, it's like, all right, you know, what's the what service time going to look like in 2022, 2023? Right, like how assume mostly the same, but yeah, yeah, right. Like you know, but it does change the calculus a little bit of you know how you would extend a player, how many free agent years you're buying out, like just even what just the the economics of baseball, like it, what a salary cap might look like if that was a possibility or salary floor, like just there's a lot of mechanisms that could change going forward, and that would change how you'd feel about a potential extension. That's one reason why I think it's like pretty unlikely that that it happens. Another one from the player's side, yeah, like Bo Bichette, pretty clearly, and particularly now that he's rubbing shoulders with like a Marcus Simeon and a George Springer, who, by the way, was one of the most blatant uh, examples of service time manipulation we have seen. Now that he's rubbing shoulders with these guys, he's not going to want to like be the the guy who, uh, and you know, think about his dad as well, who was who was pretty involved in the union. He doesn't want to be the guy to sign that absurdly team-friendly Evan Longoria deal. He's just not going to. It's right? just not going to happen. It's just not going to be him. So like for, for all these reasons, it's so hard to see these two sides lining up. And I do think like for, and I, like this might be kind of Pollyannish, but like for uh, an extension like this, you know, like the Tatis deal, you want it to be a partnership, right? Like you want both sides to actually see the benefit of it. You're sharing risk always in one of these extensions, right? Whether it's injury risk, underperformance risk. If you're a player, the, the risk is that, hey, I'm going to be really, really phenomenally good and I could have made a lot more money in free agency or even year to year in ARB. You're always going to be sharing risk. But I think that you do want both sides to actually see the value in it and see the benefit in it. Like, I don't think you want this to be like an acrimonious 
negotiation or an antagonistic thing like that's the best way to like just kibosh negotiation is to treat it as like a zero-sum exercise and to be antagonistic with each other instead of like being empathetic and understanding what the other side wants out of the deal and trying to find ways to create value so that both sides can get something out of this agreement but it's hard to see that lining up with the blue jays and bichette right now and like one other point that i would make that you kind of raised is the the no offer thing like yeah the blue jays would never offer that deal to austin martin they would never offer an insulting deal to bo bichette so when you see here bo bichette come out and say like oh we had talks but there was no offer there's you know certain there's a way to spin that of like they didn't even make an offer like remember the david price thing when he was a free agent oh they didn't Mm -hmm. even offer david price a contract well, they're not going to insult these players. Like you're going to get a gauge through discussions of what expectations are. You're not going to insult somebody by coming in with a super low ball offer and say like, Hey, maybe you'll be dumb enough to take this. That's not the way to do business in 2021. And that's not the way to keep one of the most important members of your franchise happy going forward. So like I said, a real can of worms. It is. And right now, functionally, Bobochette is on a one year $600,000 contract with four team options. That's what it means to be a pre-yard player. So it, we don't talk about it in those terms, but essentially from any sort of functional standpoint, one-year deal, four club options. So that's pretty good for the Jays. Like they don't need to go out of their way right now and, and rush to do something to shake that up. Of course, they want Bobuchet beyond the next five years, but having him for five is still pretty good. The rubber will meet the road eventually, not just with Bichette, with Vladimir Guerrero Jr., with Nate Pearson, perhaps with Austin Martin and Jordan Groshans, when it's like guys are going year to year in ARB. And if they have been as good as they believe they will be, as the Blue Jays want them to be, because if they're that good, that means the Blue Jays are probably a pretty damn good team and probably contending for World Series. If they've been that good and they put up that that level of production, well, yeah, they're going to start getting pricey through ARB and they're going to start approaching free agency and the Blue Jays will have to make a decision about whether they want to extend them into free agency and keep a good young core together or if they're going to be like the Houston Astros and say, hey, thanks for your service, George Springer. Thanks for your seven years, but off you go to Toronto to another organization. We have reaped the surplus value of your early career production for years and years, and we will be happy to let someone else pay you uh, $25 million a year for your decline. <laughs> well, yeah, and let's hope nobody ever accuses at the letters of not having foresight, because here we are talking about the free agency of players <laughs> who have yet to make their major league debuts. Yeah. So we are looking ahead. We like to cast far ahead here. Well, wouldn't this go. be the perfect time to extend Austin Martin? right now before he makes his big league debut right yeah yeah (laughs) like the earlier the better really honestly from a team perspective scott you know scott boros is saying no boros is his advisor agent but if he had a different agent someone you thought you could let's call it like it is manipulate then i would make him an offer that was very team friendly and see if he took it and maybe that agent wants that commission and is willing to you know did they, maybe that agent would just have a different um, set of... It's a uh, lot of zeros criteria. on that check, man. Yeah, exactly. 5% of 20 million Ooh. still sounds pretty good to me. Yep. It adds up. Yeah, that does add up. Could be a volume-based business. I, I think that's going to be it for us this week on At The Letters. Uh, next week, hopefully, we have some more uh, you know, happenings from Blue Jays can't talk about so we don't have to have all these abstract discussions about baseball and about the organization and where things are going. But uh, we appreciate you, as always, 
for listening. Uh, we appreciate our producers, Mike Tassoni and Christian Ryan. And uh, hey, spring training has begun. The season has begun. So that means that the letters is going to be here every week through uh, the rest of spring training, through the 2021 season, as Ben and I slowly go mad covering a baseball season from our kitchens. That's uh, right. That's right. <laughs> So you can listen to that wherever you get your podcasts. You can watch that on YouTube and you can uh, read us at sportsnet.ca. Until next time, thanks for listening. This has been at The Letters.